Hey, if, you, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it up. Um, we're, going, we're going to eventually be in Esther chapter 4. We're going to conclude our series in Esther this morning, and we'll land in Esther 4, 13, and 14, which are the two verses that are kind of the most well-known, the most popular out of the book of Esther. We'll circle back around and end things from this series in that spot. But if, if you're opening up a Bible because you've got one in front of you there, I want you to open it up actually to Revelation chapter 19. That's, that's where we're going to initially be. Um, I want to jump kind of straight into this this morning, and I want to say a few things as we get started. The first one is this. Hang with me all the way through this this morning. And I mean that in a couple of ways. We're going to have to do some kind of defining of some stuff. We're going to have to look in a few different places. And so sort of like intellectually hang with me uh, through that process. The, the second part of that ask is that you hang with me in, uh, for lack of a better way to say it, in like an emotional sense. And uh, that is because... Um, I'm going to use some words this morning that might trigger certain feelings in you based on where we are as a society today. And if when you hear those, you just check out on me, uh, you won't hear all of what uh, I'm trying to say this morning and all of what I think Esther has to say about those topics that exists in our world today. I've been praying over the last couple of weeks leading into this message that I would be clear. I've been praying over the last couple of weeks leading up to this sermon that I would be biblically accurate. I've been praying over the last couple of weeks that the Holy Spirit would be ahead of this time in my heart and in the hearts of everyone that gathers here and everyone that watches online or listens via podcast. I've been praying over the last couple of weeks that the tone and the demeanor and the delivery of this would be appropriate. I've been praying for the last couple of weeks that the gospel would clearly be the foundation of this and that God's glory would be the outcome of this. And so I stand here this morning not as a peddler of my own personal opinions. If I do that on any Sunday morning. What we end up with then is me in my flesh, in my brokenness, with my limited perspectives, delivering something to you that isn't complete and isn't full. Instead, as a pastor who longs to shepherd his people according to God's word in the middle of complex and confusing and contentious times, I pray that I stand up here merely as like a conduit for the word of God and the Holy Spirit of God to speak into the hearts of God's people. That is my aim this morning. Let me do a quick recap of last week. If you weren't here, this will give you sort of the big picture. If you were here, it'll just be a reminder. Last week, we saw that as circumstances change, God does not. And we answered a couple of questions, or we talked about kind of a couple of sort of bigger picture issues as we zoom out and look at the book of Esther. We talked about that there is this complex handshake between human responsibility and divine sovereignty. We talked about the role of God or the role that God has for women within the expanse and the work of his kingdom in the world. Today, we're going to answer two more questions as we look at the entirety of the book of Esther. That God is entirely sovereign over the unfolding of history. And so what does that mean for the reality of working for the good of our current world while we fix our eyes on the assurance 
of what is to come. And then the second question, as we do that, what is the responsibility of individuals within the kingdom of God and what is the responsibility of the collective people of God when it comes toward working for that good? The landing place is going to be this, that God's people living under God's rule and reign are a means by which God brings righteousness and justice into the world. God's people living under God's rule and reign are a means by which God brings righteousness and justice into the world. Let's pray and then we'll, we'll look at Revelation 19. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you that you are a God who uh, turns uh, beauty out of ashes. You are a God that turns graves into gardens. You are a God who uses broken people in order to proclaim your goodness and your glory, God. I pray that we as a church, collectively, that we as individuals, Lord, would just submit ourselves to your sovereignty, to your providence, to your desire, and the certainty that you will bring your will about in this world, and also to the reality that you want to use us in that process. God, would we be humble and willing to be used by you, however it is that you see fit, according to your will, that you might expand your kingdom in this place, in this time. And then God, would you tune our hearts to the reality that there is a new world, a new heaven, a new earth coming. And that as those who have been saved by your grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we can look forward to that with absolute assurance and allow it, allow it to give us hope and allow it to give us confidence for how it is that we live here and now. God, would your Holy Spirit do that work in us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I think the best way for us to start this this, this morning is to begin with the end in mind. And so I'm going to read from two places in the book of Revelation. Revelation 19, starting in verse 11, and then we'll flip over to Revelation 21, beginning in verse 1. This is what Revelation 19, 11 through 16 says. Then I that's the author of Revelation, saw heaven opened and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True and he judges and makes war with justice. His eyes were like a fiery flame and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod he will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Revelation 21, starting in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. He also said, right, because these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. 
I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. There's a picture of the end. There's a lot of, uh, within the book of Revelation that we could debate about, timelines, what does all the imagery mean, but there are some certainties from the book of Revelation and some certainties from this particular passage that we can absolutely bank on. Let me just walk through four of those certainties. Certainty number one, the world, as it is now, and all of its sin and all of its brokenness will pass away. Absolutely. And that will happen in conjunction with the second coming of Jesus, not in meekness or in weakness, but when he comes back in power and in glory. Number two, there will be a final moment of judgment. Those not saved by the grace of God through faith in the righteousness of Jesus Christ will receive just eternal punishment. Those who have been saved, Revelation 7 says, people from every tribe, nation, tongue, race, ethnicity, they will enter into the eternal presence of perfect communion with God. Number three, Satan and sin will come to their ultimate end. Number four, sin will not be present in the new heaven and the new earth. All wrongs will be made right. God's people will dwell with him in perfect communion for all of eternity. That picture of that coming future reality is one that ought to give Christians an immense amount of hope, and it's one that ought to give Christians an immense amount of confidence. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, says it this way, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Kept in heaven for you. And you are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And then he says, you rejoice in this, that that time is coming, when this world and all of its brokenness will pass away, when a final judgment and perfect righteousness and justice will be meted out for all of humanity, when Satan and sin will come to their ultimate end and where sin will no longer be present. That is something that we rejoice in. That vision of the end is something that ought to provide hope for Christians, but it also should help us understand something of what the advancing kingdom of God ought to look like here and now. If we're honest, we keep that picture in mind and we look around at the world as it exists around us, we have to be willing to say that the place where we live now doesn't look very much like no tears, no death, no grief, no crying, no pain, no sin, perfect communion with God. Where we live now doesn't match up to what is coming as shown to us in the book of Revelation. Instead, we look around the world today and we see an abundance of tears, of grief, of crying, of pain, of sin and brokenness. We see much that deeply grieves the heart of God. And it ought to lead us to a question. Do we just lock our eyes on the future hope of eternity in the presence of God and then just kind of let the world and all of its brokenness around us exist as they exist because we're just waiting for something in the future and everything around us can just be what it is because this isn't my ultimate home? When we think about a future where righteousness and holiness reign, 
what should that cause us to do in relation to the world that we currently live in? Any honest, faithful follower of Jesus could not say that in response to what we know is coming and the hope and the joy of that place, we just look at the world around us and say, hey, no big deal. Let it be what it is and just wait for something better to come, either until you pass away or Jesus comes and takes you to be with him. So then the question becomes, what does it mean to live in a way that promotes good, air quotes, good in our world now and in a fashion that we are, and in a fashion that we are responsible for doing so? And the, that is the question that I want to answer this morning. What does it mean to promote good in the world? What is that good? And then what is my responsibility as an individual follower of Jesus? Your responsibility as an individual follower of Jesus. And what is our responsibility as the collective body of Jesus in that? I think the book of Esther has something to say about that. That's what I want us to see this morning. In order to start that process, we need to define what God's kingdom is. You hear that thrown around all the time. This is about the kingdom of God. We're, we're all part of God's kingdom, whether you go to this church or another church or some, some other place, or you live on the other side of the world and I live here. We're all part of God's kingdom. What is God's kingdom? Let me start to define that by saying what it is not. It's wrong to think about God's kingdom strictly as a people, in the Old Testament, we could be tempted to think of the, as God's kingdom just strictly as the Israelites, the Jewish people. In the New Testament, we could be kind of tempted to think the kingdom of God is just Christians. That's what the kingdom of God is. That's not the case. It's also wrong to think about the kingdom of God strictly in terms of a place. In the Old Testament, it's wrong to say that the kingdom of God was Canaan. Once they got to Canaan, then they were in God's kingdom. In the New Testament, it's wrong to say that the kingdom of God is like church property. Once you arrive at Liberty Christian Fellowship or some other church's property and you walk into the sanctuary, now you're in the kingdom of God. That's not true. And just to be very clear, it would also be wrong to say the kingdom of God must obviously be America. Just, that's not true. It's not the kingdom of God is not relegated to a place. The kingdom of God is also not relegated just to a system of laws or commands. It's not that the kingdom of God is just obedience to all the things that the Bible has said. Not a place, not a people, not a set of laws. God's kingdom in its most simple definition is a reign, R-E-I-G-N, a rule. One that has extended for all of eternity past and will exist and extend through all of eternity's future. Here's a definition, that the kingdom of God is the absolute rule and reign of God over all things spiritual and physical, sovereignly moving all things toward the accomplishment of his eternal will. The kingdom of God is the absolute rule and reign of God over all things spiritual and physical. That reign and that rule is, an, is a spiritual eternal reality that has in love and for God's glory, given birth to a physical, temporal space. God's kingdom creates a people. God's kingdom creates a place. It creates a set of laws or commands. And so in our day, when we talk about the kingdom of God, we're talking about the rule and reign of God as it is expressed here on earth through God's people who live in submission to his reign according to his laws and commands. When we talk about the kingdom of God expanding, we're talking about God's rule and reign having supremacy in the hearts of an increasing number of people who live accordingly in submission to and with a passion 
for the God who rules. Think about the book of Esther. This is one of like the big points that we've been making over the last 11 weeks while we've worked through the book of Esther, but also really specifically over the last few weeks. When you zoom out and you look at the big idea in Esther that God is sovereign and that he's working providentially, that he's reigning over the events of the book of Esther, we've talked, you see two groups of people, the Israelites, God's people, the Jewish people living in Persia in the case of Esther, and then you see the opposition to that, which would be kind of represented by and gets its primary image in Esther in Haman. And those two things come clashing in to one another. That's not a theme that's only present in the book of Esther. It's a big part of the meta-narrative, the big picture story of the Old Testament and the way it ultimately points to the work of Jesus on the cross. When you see Moses square off against Pharaoh in the book of Exodus, what you're seeing is God ruling and reigning, squaring off against the false gods of Egypt. That's the real picture. Who ends up supreme? Yahweh. He will rule and he will reign. When you see like David march out to fight against Goliath, you're not just watching a small shepherd boy line up and fight against a large Philistine. You're watching Yahweh, the God who rules and reigns, square off against the people who worship something false. And who wins? God, because he rules and he reigns. When you watch Elijah walk up onto the mountain and square off against the prophets of Baal, you're not just watching Elijah versus some false prophets. You're watching Yahweh demonstrate his superiority over the false god Baal. That is the picture, one of the dominant pictures throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, and it all comes to fruition on the cross. When you see Jesus hanging on the cross and walking triumphantly out of the tomb, you are seeing God the son, triumph over sin, ruling and reigning supreme. And when we read something in like Revelation 19, where you see Jesus coming back on a white horse, making war with justice, putting a final end to sin, what are you seeing? You're seeing God rule and reign with absolute authority. You're seeing the kingdom of God. His rule, his reign. One way that we often talk about the kingdom of God is as like a separation of people into two groups, that there are those who are part of God's kingdom and they're part of that because they are saved by the grace of Jesus Christ and they live consciously, willingly, and joyfully under God's rule and reign and those who would be opposed to the kingdom of God because they have not been saved and thus live consciously, willingly, and oftentimes joyfully opposed to God's rule and God's reign. In the New Testament, you see Jesus talk about that. Sheep and goats, wheat and chaff, trees that bear fruit, trees that do not bear fruit. So then it bears uh, at least kind of really brief understanding of what are the qualities of God's kingdom? How does he rule? How does he reign? We could list a ton of these with love, with grace, with truth, with mercy. But two of those that matter for us this morning are that he reigns with righteousness. Righteousness, that means that God always acts in according with what is right and actually that God himself is the final standard and arbiter of what is 
right. When you're reading in the Old Testament and you see the word righteousness, you're seeing the Hebrew word zedek. That can be transliterated a couple ways with a TZ on the front. It can also be transliterated with an S on the front. When you're reading in the New Testament and you see the word righteousness, you're seeing the Greek word dikios. What's another aspect of God's rule and God's reign? He is just in all things. There is justice within the kingdom of God. When you're reading in the Old Testament and you come across the word justice, you're seeing the Hebrew word zedekah. Notice how similar that is to the word righteousness. When you see the word justice in the New Testament, you're seeing the Greek word dikiosini. Notice how close that is to the word for righteousness. What is justice? If you were to pop open a theology textbook and look up the definition of the word justice, you would see that it says it is literally another word for or the application of God's righteousness. That's how God rules and reigns. And so the bottom line is that anything that perpetuates unrighteousness in the world is unjust and therefore is a opposed to the rule and the reign of God. Righteous and just, that is who God is and that is how God rules. He can do no other. Everything that God does within his kingdom, his rule, his reign is right and it is just. So with that in mind, if God's people are living in submission to his rule and his reign, what is one thing that ought to mark the way that we live? Righteousness and justice. Righteousness and justice as defined by God. So right now, let me answer the first question. What does it mean to do good in the world today while we await our certain eternal future? It would mean to do here on earth that which is righteous and just, that which aligns with God's righteousness and justice, and to do so according to all the other attributes of God and his reign. So we do righteousness and we do justice in love, in truth, with mercy, with grace, in humility, and in goodness. Like we take righteousness and justice and all the rest of who God is and how God rules and reigns, and that is how we are to live and to act in the world that exists around us. In both the Hebrew and the Greek, Old Testament and New Testament. Adam, if you'll go back one slide. Those two words for righteousness and justice, they also have one other important ramification for us today. Yes, they both mean to be upright, to be fair, to be virtuous, to be equitable. And we think of those qualities as primarily being confined to individuals. That's how we are to act. I am to be fair and virtuous and equitable. And that's absolutely true. Your righteousness in Christ only applies to you. It's an individual uh, covering of God's grace that saves you. Your personal holiness is something that you work through in partnership and in reliance upon the Holy Spirit. That's, that's totally true. But both the Hebrew and the Greek words also include this connotation to be communally faithful to be communally beneficial. That's why 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says that those who are followers of Jesus are a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, individuals who live righteously and justly, 
but also a collective group who live righteously and justly. Therefore, as those who live under and in obedience to the righteous, just rule and reign of God, we have a responsibility to act individually and collectively in opposition to which, uh, in opposition to that which God would call unrighteous or unjust. One key for this right now before we flip over and look at Esther. Our definition for right and our definition for just can only come from one place it has to come from scripture. As followers of Jesus, that would be the definitive lens that would separate us from the rest of the world. As the kingdom of God, that is the one thing that differentiates us from anything else. And so our ideas of what is right and what is just cannot come from our preferred cable news network. It cannot come from our preferred political party and their platform. It cannot come from our idea of what it ideally means to be an American and to realize like the American dream. Our standard of what is right and what is just comes from scripture, which means that a person who doesn't live in America, who doesn't care at all about our political system, who doesn't have access to a 24-hour stream of news on our channels with our pundits, and who doesn't have an American dream, could define righteousness and justice the exact same way. That's where our standard has to come from. One of the great common graces to the world is that God's people would bring righteousness and justice into a broken place. The whole world, not just the people of God, benefit to their own good and to God's glory when God's people living under his rule and his reign work justly according to his standard of righteousness. Bill Hybels says that the local church is the hope of the world. We know that Jesus is the hope of the world, but what he means there is that the local church carries that message, that in Christ, we have seen perfect righteousness and perfect justice meet with absolute harmony and with perfect love and perfect grace. In Christ, we have seen our sin forgiven and entrance into the kingdom of God blown wide open for all people. And now, in word and in deed, we carry that message to the end of the world. We carry that message into the very darkest and most broken places in our own communities. Esther chapter four. Haman has written this decree that all the Jewish people are to be destroyed and annihilated on one particular day. That has become law in Persia. Mordecai, a Jewish individual, is incredibly distressed over that. But praise the Lord in his sovereignty and providence, there's someone on the inside who could advocate for those Jewish people. So Mordecai goes to his relative Esther and in kind of the verbal high point of the book, Esther 4, 13 and 14 says this, Mordecai told the messenger to reply to Esther, don't think that you will escape the fate of all the Jews because you are in the king's palace. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place, but you and your family, your father's family will be destroyed. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Let's make a few observations. Observation number one. God is doing something in this broken, nasty situation in Esther. He's sovereign. 
He's providential. We talked about this throughout the book of Esther. Mordecai doesn't explicitly name what God is doing. Mordecai doesn't even name God. But you don't have to name it or recognize it or even like it because God is sovereign. And whether you ascribe to that or not doesn't change the reality of the fact that he is. He's always doing something for his purposes and for his glory. And so Mordecai looks at Esther and says, maybe you're the one through whom God is going to address this great tragedy, this great injustice. That's not a statement solely about Esther. It's a statement about God and what he is doing and who he has positioned in order to do so. Observation number two, Esther and Mordecai don't operate strictly in individual vacuums. As Americans, we have been hardwired to think that we just operate solely as individuals. You want to be a wild success in life? It's all on you. Everything's going wrong? It was probably all your fault. That's how we're wired to think. We're like fish in water. We don't even recognize that until someone brings it to the forefront and helps us see it. Instead, Mordecai and Esther's is a collective effort on behalf of a collective group of people. Scripture's full of places where that is the case. Are there places where individuals act righteously and justly? Yes, absolutely. But we cannot deny the fact that in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, there are a plethora of examples where groups of people act righteously and justly on behalf of groups of individuals or groups of people. There are also places where individuals act sinfully or unrighteously and the impact comes to groups of of people. Observation number three. We could just kind of let the world go to hell in a handbasket, so to speak, but we wouldn't escape the consequences and realities of the brokenness that exists around us. That's what Mordecai says to Esther. You could stay quiet. You won't escape what's about to happen, but you could just let it go, and the same fate that's coming to the Jewish people would come to you. The same is true for us today. Even if your reasons for trying to work against brokenness and sin are 100% self-interested, there's still reason to work against it because the realities of brokenness impact our lives even when we're not the cause. And so even if you just wanted a smoother life for yourself and you didn't care about anyone else, there'd be reasons to work against sin and brokenness in the world. Now, we work against those areas of brokenness not just for our own good. In fact, there very well may be times where doing so is actually a sacrifice for us. It puts us at risk, maybe just of being verbally maligned or maybe in other places where uh, Christianity is really oppressed, there are places where working in terms of biblical righteousness and justice could literally cost someone their life. And yet, we do so because to act righteously means to do the righteous thing no matter what. Final observation. Notice what Esther does not say in response to Mordecai. Esther doesn't say, hey, the world's kind of a nasty place. Nothing we can do about it. Let's just wait until this is all over and we go to a new place. Esther doesn't say, hey, Mordecai, thanks for letting me know. Thanks for sharing with me. That must be really hard. I'm kind of safe inside here in the palace. I don't think it's going to impact me. I won't kill any Jewish people on my own, so everything will be fine. Instead, Esther goes before the Lord, fasting, praying. What am I to do? And then she goes in to the king. What does that mean for us today? 
Number one, we can rest assured that God is working in our world today for his glory and for the expanse of his kingdom. He's doing that in every situation. He has done that in every situation that's ever existed. He will continue to do that for all of eternity. Number two, we are here at this time in this place for his purposes. Me, you, person listening on the podcast, we're here at this time, in this place, in history, for God's purposes. I will be the first one to say, I wish I could have become the lead pastor of a church in a time that didn't involve coronavirus. Like, please, Lord, could we have done this any other time? But I'm, I'm here right now, and God's doing something in our world, in this body of Christ, for his purposes, for his good, for his glory, and I'm to submit myself to that and do what's right and just in the middle of it with love, with grace, with truth, with mercy, and a display of goodness and kindness motivated by the gospel. Number three, we have a responsibility as individuals and as a collective church to act in opposition to sin and brokenness according to the righteousness of God. We don't do that according to our own sensibilities. We don't do that according to our own thoughts about what we think is right and just in the world. God defines righteousness and justice. And therefore, God sets the agenda for the work that his church is to do in the world while we eagerly await his return. God's people living under God's rule and reign are the means by which righteousness and justice, are the means by which God brings righteousness and justice into the world. In the book of Esther, God sovereignly and providentially works righteously and justly through Mordecai and Esther on behalf of his people for his purposes. Let me give a couple current examples. We could take any number of examples from our culture right now. I don't have time to name them all. By selecting a couple, I'm not downplaying, ignoring, or minimizing any other one. So one of the things that's really popular in our world right now is when someone says, this thing is unrighteous. Someone else says, yeah, but what about? Okay, I understand that I don't have time to name every single unrighteousness and injustice in the world and try to catch them all right now. So I'm going to just give a couple of these as examples. Not long ago, 39 children were rescued literally out of a double-wide trailer in Georgia because they were being trafficked. That is unrighteous. It is unjust. As individuals, we understand that it would be important and holy not to be involved in human trafficking. Like we, we get that. Hey, as a follower of Jesus, who's trying to act righteously and justly, I shouldn't traffic human beings. That could go further though. Because it would also be important for us as individual followers of Jesus to not engage with or in any way support or perpetuate the pornography industry which is one of the foremost ways and reasons that people end up being trafficked. 
And so if you wanna live righteously and act justly in the world, it's not just that I don't traffic human beings myself, it's that I remove myself from all the ways and all the places that someone might end up being trafficked. You can't say human trafficking is wrong and then hop on your computer and look at pornography. You're feeding it. Collectively, Christians motivated by the righteousness and the justice of God have formed organizations like the International Justice Mission or Christine Kane's A21 campaign or the Run to End It campaign that are all fantastic groups working collectively motivated by the clear commands of God's righteousness and God's justice to end something unjust. The church, both nationally and globally, has stepped up to work against human trafficking Large groups of both Christians and non-Christians are working through legal and political channels, both nationally and globally, in order to put a stop to the unjust or kind of loopholes within laws that make it possible in some of these places for people to go undetected in their trafficking of individuals. It doesn't take a huge leap of faith to understand the brokenness of human trafficking, the unrighteousness and the sin of it, and then to know that as individual believers and as the collective body of Christ who are submissive to the just and righteous rule and reign of God, we are to think and act in a certain way as it relates to that topic. Make sense? I've waited maybe longer than some would have liked to wade into one other topic as it relates to this. I've waited intentionally in order to listen, in order to listen to brothers and sisters in this congregation, in order to, to continue to listen and read brothers and sisters from other churches across the nation and around the world, and in order to listen to men and women from other parts of, of society. I've done so in order to engage thoughtfully on this topic. I've done so in order for our staff to have conversations about what we're willing to do in this regard within the walls of our church and also potentially outside the walls of our church. Those are all important to me, but I've also waited so that I could do this biblically. When it comes to matters of racial justice, we as followers of Jesus have an obligation, not an obligation to a strictly social justice cause, not an obligation to a, a certain political perspective or a certain kind of vision for what we think is socially right or wrong. We have an obligation as followers of Jesus to look at the Bible and then to call what's unjust and unrighteous, unjust and unrighteous. You can lob tags at this topic if you want to. You can send me an email and call me a cultural Marxist. You can send me an email and call me a social justice warrior and I will send you an email or a text message back and say, no, I'm trying to think biblically. We have an obligation under the righteous and just rule and reign of a sovereign God as citizens of the kingdom of God to call what is unjust, unjust, to call what is unrighteous, unrighteous, and 
to work against it. Now, we can debate the best ways to work against it. That is totally fine. We can talk about the right way that that should play itself out as individual followers of Jesus and as a collective body of Christ. And does that or does that not involve certain changes and what particular changes within political channels? Those are all wonderful discussions. But we sat down as a staff with some members of our own congregation and listened to them talk about the way this reality in our world impacts their lives. And I will never forget one of the brothers of our own congregation saying, I don't need everyone in my church family to agree with me on the solution, but for a number of people in my congregation to deny that there's a problem hurts me to the core. I'll never forget that. I'll never forget one of the sisters in this congregation saying to not even talk about these matters is maybe the most hurtful part of the whole thing. And they're right because as followers of Jesus, we have an obligation to call what is broken, broken. And to do so biblically. To stand rooted in scripture and understand that there's an individual obligation in response to that, and there is a collective obligation in response of that, and that the only place where we get our answers for what is righteous and what is just is from Scripture. That's where we start, and that is where we end. What are the answers? How do we best pursue them? Those are fantastic questions, fantastic conversations that need to continue to be carried out in thoughtful and spirited conversation, biblically based among believers from all theological stripes and all political stripes. But to not acknowledge the issue causes much pain for many in this congregation, in the church in America, and for the world outside the church. But there's good news. We have good news as it relates to all matters of injustice and brokenness in the world. We have seen the righteousness and the justice of God in Jesus Christ. That is good news. We know exactly what it looks like for righteousness and justice to come into the world in perfect harmony with love and grace, and we can look at the cross and be motivated by it to do the same. We have good news that we have been ushered into the kingdom of God by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, and therefore have definitive answers for what is right and what is not, for what is just and what is not, for what it looks like to be the church and to operate according to that. And we have good news. Whether we like it or not, we've been put here right now. And every resource needed to address every matter of injustice and unrighteousness in our world is present within the church. He's gifted us to do so. That is good news We have a God who will put us in the right places at the right time according to his sovereignty and his providential working that the church might act righteously and justly. It's good news that we have the Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us in that task. And it is good news that for all of our fumbling and stumbling that happens in this world, God will come back one day, Revelation 19, and put a full end to it all. That is good news. And so as followers of Jesus, we can remind our hearts simply saying, behold our God seated on the throne and nothing is slipping by him unseen. 
Nothing is happening in our world uncharted by him. He will right every wrong. He will fix every injustice. He will use his church to speak and to fight against it. And that means we can say to the whole world with joy and with confidence, you come behold our God seated on his throne. Come and adore him. And when the church speaks against unrighteousness and injustice in all of its forms, we uphold a very beautiful God who has saved us with a very beautiful Savior who will one day come back and usher us into a very beautiful new heaven and new earth where we will spend all of eternity in a very beautiful, perfect communion with God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Behold our God seated on his throne. Come, let us adore him. Let's sing together.